Good evening, folks. Let's get our bearings in our study of the great Roman epistle uh, in our evening service. We have uh, covered a majority of the book now. We have established a number of very basic doctrines uh, in the Christian faith. We've now come through chapter 9, that is a chapter that could be summarized with the headline, God's Sovereignty in Human Salvation. God sovereignly brings salvation to a chosen people, breaking their sinful hearts by his healing grace, making them the sons and daughters of God. But then he also passes over others, not regenerating them, not breaking their hearts of stone, for they are not the elect of God. That is the teaching of Romans chapter 9, God's sovereignty in salvation. But then we come to the chapter we're studying now, Romans 10. And this chapter might well be summarized as man's responsibility in salvation. Though God is sovereign, every person in the world is responsible for how they respond to God, be it Jew or Gentile, be they responding to the revelation of God through nature or through conscience, what we call general revelation, and everybody has that, or whether they are responding to the gospel of Christ as it's found in the Bible, God's special revelation, as we call it. But the key thing here, there is no ultimate conflict, though there is an apparent one. There is no ultimate conflict between chapter 9 in Romans and chapter 10 in Romans, between God's sovereignty and man's salvation. We saw in the verses that precede our reading tonight in Pastor Ben's uh, sermon, verses 12 to 13, kind of the the ramp up to the text for tonight. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, in tonight's passage, the apostle is going to develop that thought of calling on the name of the Lord a lot more. So let's dive into it here. Let's begin with verse 14 in chapter 10 of the epistle to the Roman church. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear? Without someone preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. 
Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let us turn our hearts to God in prayer. Our Father, we we have just read it, that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, through the preached word. And so we ask that our sovereign, our Lord, our King, our brother, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend would speak to us tonight as we each need to hear the gospel. Put us in the school of Christ, that we may learn of him and be born anew in him. For we pray this way, for Jesus' sake, amen. Now you know, some rabbit trails are of the Lord. Having said that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul now follows that thought a bit. He writes in verse 12, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now this language of calling on the name of the Lord for salvation, it almost makes salvation sound too easy, doesn't it? I said almost. To say, just call on the name of the Lord, and suddenly your your sins are forgiven, your destiny is revealed, Satan's vice grip on your life is broken, you are born again and born from above, and the Holy Spirit starts housekeeping in your soul, and you're adopted by the Father into the eternal heavenly family, and you look forward to meeting Christ in the air as he returns All because you called on his name? Well, yes, actually. Yes. Just because you called on his name with true faith. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, Paul asks. You see, Paul's assuming that this calling involves belief. And not just a bare belief a belief that something is, but a a trust in it. That is, faith. In other words, this call that is on the Lord, the name of the Lord, is sincere. There's no hidden agendas. It's got holy desperation in it. It's earnest. For, you see, the name of God, or the name of Christ is not some kind of spiritual incantation. It cannot be used as a spiritual abracadabra that summons God like a servant to your side. That's not what's happening here. No, calling on the name of the Lord in this way that Paul is writing about is like a person who calls 911 when they sense someone has broken into their house at night. It's like the call a little child makes to mom and dad when they're scared and they've had a bad dream in the night. It's like you calling on your most dearly beloved 
on your deathbed. This is a serious call. This is an earnest call. This is a sincere call. There's no time for games, no testing to see if it works, no deal-making with God before the Lord. You're calling on His name and you know you are. Faith, true faith, has vocal cords. But now Paul wonders, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? See, like all good theologians, Paul now is drilling down to the most practical level. And yet, this concern about people hearing the gospel being preached is still all tied up with these larger issues of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And really, that's what Paul's fleshing out here. What are the Jews responsible for? Yes, God sends his preachers into the world, and men are responsible for going at that call and preaching. God speaks sovereignly and saves people through the apparent foolishness of preaching, but men and women are held accountable for how they respond to the word. Again, it's always God's activity and human response. And so everything ends up turning on this central question, will they call upon the name of the Lord? This much you can know for sure. The Apostle Paul really, really believed in preaching as the main path of enabling that call of faith from his from God's people. Not the Roman mass, not pseudo-evangelical spiritual entertainment, not in showy tongue speaking, not in promises of wealth or healing, in preaching. In preaching. Now, Paul is not saying a person can only be saved by preaching, but he is saying it is the mainstay of divine redemption. It is the four-lane highway of to heaven. And this whole section in this passage is really all about preaching. In fact, if you'll look at the middle part of verse 12, it reads, And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now, the hearing here, of course, is is hearing preaching. That's what we're talking about. But what I want to ask you is this. Who's doing the preaching in this verse? I mean, at first, we, we just assume it's the preachers doing the preaching. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That's how most English translations make this out. But the literal Greek wording is not quite that. As the New American Standard more precisely translates it, it should read, And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard, not of whom they have never heard. In other words, that that little preposition of does not appear in the original language. Now, this whole section is about preaching, but here it really should be read that Christ himself is the preacher. 
read it like this. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Now, believing in him is not believing in the earthly preacher. It's believing in Christ. The implication is clear. Christ himself speaks to his people through his preachers. Verse 17 here says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Dean. No, it doesn't say the word of Dean. It says the word of Christ. But it's about preaching. It's about preaching. The Holy Spirit translates our imperfect sermons. Ben's are perfect, but mine are imperfect. Translates our imperfect sermons to the minds of believers and feeds them the very gospel of our God. That's what happens spiritually when the church gathers under the word. Jesus himself said as he sent out 72 disciples to preach, He who listens to you, he said to his disciples, his preaching battalion, he said, He who listens to you, listens to me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And so if you're listening tonight, maybe online, maybe here tonight, and you know you're not converted to Christ, it's not because he hasn't spoken to you. Oh, he has. Yes, he has. He speaks in sermons. He has this very Sabbath day spoken to you. As J.I. Packer says, a true sermon is an act of God, not a mere performance of a man. And as such, you see, the whole enterprise with preaching doesn't begin with us, it begins with God. John Calvin's comment on this verse is nuanced. He says, The gospel does not fall like rain from the clouds, but is brought by the hands of men wherever it is sent from above. Sent from above. And yet on the human responsibility end of things, we still must hear the call, prepare the lesson, prepare the sermon, and go and preach. We must support preaching and the planting of new churches everywhere. Paul asks next, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, brothers and sisters, most of us will not be going to some unreached area to preach or even into the next county to preach. Most of you will never preach a single sermon, nor should you. But we can all support the work of preaching by being engaged in the sending aspect the apostle mentions here. This congregation's commitment to not only support planting churches, but the training and and sending of seminary students into various kinds of preaching ministries is right at the center of the bullseye of the mission of the church in this age. There are other things the church must do as well, but spreading worship by supporting preaching and church planting is mission number one, and on that we ought all to agree. How can I say that so strongly? Look at the whole of verse 15, would you? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
Now Paul's quoting from the prophet Isaiah here. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What is it about the feet of preachers? God's heralds that could be so beautiful? Well, let me tell you, I've looked at mine, and trust me, the answer is not obvious. But as R.C. Sproul explained, the imagery is of a runner coming from a battle with news either of a victory or a defeat. The lookout on the city wall waited anxiously for any sign of the outcome of the battle. And the first thing that he saw was the dust cloud being stirred up by the churning feet of the runner, the messenger. The lookouts were able to tell from a great distance whether the news was good news or bad news. Somehow they recognized by looking at the action of the feet of the runner whether the news was good or bad. If it was news of a calamitous defeat, there was a kind of plodding stride, the heavy, weighty, cumbersome step of the runner as he approached. If the news was good news, then the feet were flying, the dust was being kicked up, and there was an enthusiasm in the stride of the runner as he approached. The most beautiful sight, Sproul writes, the most beautiful sight for the lookout was to see feet that were flying in joy and excitement because that meant good news. So what makes the feet of the heralds beautiful is how good the news is that they have to bring to the people. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, we have such good news for this world. You know, I have uh, been in ministry almost four decades, and much has changed in those four. I've changed some in those four decades, but one thing has not changed. The gospel of God is just that. It is good news. It was good news when I first began preaching in 1986, and it is good news today. Bless the Lord. It is the news that we long to hear, but we could never have articulated it. We didn't understand our own disease. We didn't understand the root of our misery. We couldn't have comprehended the mercy of God in Christ. But when we saw the incarnate Son come graciously and gloriously into our lives, we knew forever it was good news. Folks, give me an ugly preacher with good news over a pretty boy preacher with nothing to say any day. See, you don't have to worry about that with me. Now, I'm going to tell you a true story that I hope forever shapes how you remember this famous passage about how beautiful are the feet of him who preaches the good news of the gospel. This story comes from a missionary to Western Africa from about a century ago, and that missionary doctor then told it to Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great preacher in Philadelphia, uh, and then others heard it, and it gets passed down. A certain man in this African village had contracted a 
wretched disease called elephantiasis. Elephantiasis uh, affects the extensions, your, 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 your limbs, and swells them, especially the legs. And your legs become grossly swollen and, and scabbed and, and, and leathery on the outside. It's called elephantiasis because your, your legs and feet particularly look like an elephant's legs and feet. It's painful. It's, it's, it's humiliating. It's, it's horrible. Well, this particular man in this village had this condition, but the missionary doctor befriended him. And it wasn't too long that this man became a radiant Christian. That's how Barnhouse described him, a radiant believer. And he could not not tell people about the mercy of God in Christ towards him. That he belonged to the heavenly family. That he and all his sins and all his resentments at his condition had been forgiven. That he had God within him now by the Spirit. That he was adopted into the eternal and universal family of God. That he had a future with God in glory in a resurrected body with no, no pathologies. He was a radiant Christian. And so he, he went, he dragged his feet, his painful legs from hut to hut in this village. And he shared the gospel with each one there. He became the great evangelist of this village. And in several days, about three days, he had covered every hut in that area. He was exhausted, but he rested up some and immediately he began to talk to the missionary doctor about going two miles down the road to another village, a larger one. So the doctor talked to him, counseled him, and one morning, bright and early, he heads out. It takes him hours and hours to drag himself with his, his disabled legs and feet to this village, but he does so cheerfully, resting in spells, he arrives, he begins again to go door to door there. They had heard of him, and they knew he was coming. And for days and days, he ministered the gospel there in the way a humble believer does. And eventually, he made the two-mile track back home. He was happy and exhausted and in much pain. About a week later, he was getting restless again. Now, at this point, there are no nearby villages, but there's one small hamlet, very small village, that was 11 miles away through a jungle path. And he knew better than to ask the doctor about it. He would never get agreement from him to do this. So one morning, long before the sun came up, he headed out on that path. Didn't tell anybody. Through the jungle he goes, one step at a time. It was near noon before he got to that small village. And he went from place to place there doing exactly as he had done before. It took him all afternoon. And he didn't have a place to stay there, unlike the other village he had gone to. So having no place to sleep, having finished his witness, he began to head back through the jungle as night was falling. Part of him he recognized was terrified. 
But he was so happy to have shared the gospel again that he sort of went on that adrenaline through the night. And you can imagine some of the suffering, some of the pain from the, the roots and the vines and the, the, the darkness of it all. It was a moonlit night, but it was dark because of the tree cover. All night long, as it were, he made his way back to the village. And then uh, Dr. Barnhouse, I'll let him tell it from here, he said, Toward midnight, the missionary doctor was awakened by a noise on his front porch. He listened, but all seemed still. Somehow he could not go back to sleep, and he went to the door with a light to see what it calls the noise. He recognized at once that his poor neighbor had returned to the village from his long trip and had come with his wounded and bleeding leg stumps to the door of the dispensary. The missionary called his helpers and they lifted the man, almost unconscious, and put him on one of the beds in the little hospital. The doctor said that he had seldom seen such a frightful sight as he looked upon those bleeding feet which had come back from such an errand of love and mercy. Unashamedly, the doctor told how he had bent over those feet to minister to them, and as he cleaned and dressed them, he told how his own tears had fallen with the ointment upon them. The doctor ended the story by saying, In all my life, I do not know when my heart was more drawn out to another Christian believer. All I could think of was the verse in the Word of God, How beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings, that publish peace. How beautiful. How beautiful. You know, it was Chaucer in the 14th century, actually the 15th century, that coined the phrase, handsome is as handsome does. Now, over time, that phrase became, beauty is as beauty does. And then Tom Hanks, in that movie about the guy who ran, remember? What's it called? In Forrest Gump. His mother turns that into stupid is as stupid does. But beauty is as beauty does is the statement. And that is the truth in the church. Beauty is as beauty does. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. My sermon title tonight is Beautiful Feet and Open Hands. This beautiful work of faithfully preaching a beautiful gospel, let's be honest, is often met with indifference and boredom. Can you imagine? They've heard the very word of Christ. Paul is still focused on Israel's rejection in verses 16 through 21, but it could be applied to anybody, Jew or non-Jew who hears the good news of God with a glazed-over look in their eyes. I've said this before, but it's a real experience to preach from this pulpit at a large funeral here when not only the saints come to to meet, you know, to honor uh, the moment and the deceased, but a lot of extended family, a a lot of co-workers, a lot of people, with, frankly, without Christian faith. And, I mean, some of them, there's nothing there. 
I mean, they're, they're, they're physically there, they're alert, but there's nothing in their eyes. They're like those, those rainbow trout in the Harris Teeter uh, seafood section that's got those dead eyes. I mean, they're dead spiritually. You can see that from up here. I know Pastor Ben has seen this before. He knows of what I'm speaking. The greatest news the world could ever hear is made by, is, is responded to, is met by blank, dull stares. Is it just a matter of ignorance? Now, now, Paul is certainly aware you can't blame the Jews' rejection of Christ entirely on ignorance. In verse 18, he quotes Psalm 19 to emphasize that like the, like the heavens above, the testimony of the gospel has gone out to the, quote, ends of the world. That is, to the end of the regions familiar to the church in Rome, the whole Mediterranean world. By the end of the first century, if not before, most Jews in the empire had heard of Jesus, certainly, and, and many had had a reasonable representation of his ministry and his claims. The church's earliest mission was not to the Gentiles, but to the synagogues. Yet even though so many had heard the gospel preached, still they had rejected it. If they didn't understand, Paul says, they should have understood, as he says in verses 19 to 20, But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. That's speaking of the shaming of the Jews by the Gentiles believing the gospel first. And then in verse 20, again, speaking of the gospel being received by the Gentiles, he said, then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Israel's rejection of Messiah, as well as the Gentiles' reception of Messiah, was prophesied. And yet... There's another quote here from Isaiah that, if not pointing to a different direction, has a different aspect of truth in it. At the end of our passage for tonight, verse 21, we read, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, we began this sermon by saying that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And now we have a picture of the Lord holding out his hands, as it were, his open hands. This isn't a hand extending a handshake to cut a deal with us where we contribute something to this transaction as though this salvation were like selling a Toyota. No, even less is this a hand raised with a violent fist to strike us for our sins. No, they are hands of openness. They are hands that would help us. They are hands that would receive us, accept us, and bless us. And all day long he holds out his hands. To the Jewish people, yes, but to countless 
others as well. And so much of humanity, Jew and Gentile, just passes him by. Nothing to see here, folks. Just some religion. Just move along. The very creator of the universe is extending open hands to his creatures. And he's doing so all day long, Paul says. How long is the day? It's the whole church age. In a sense, it's the whole age of redemption, going back to Abraham, even going back to Adam. Always God has had open hands towards us. When people sin against God, they don't sin against a God who's against them. Open hands. Like a parent reaching towards a hurting child. Like a husband and wife who greet each other after a long, hard day. Like a suffering servant who stretched out his holy hands on a Roman cross to save a people from themselves. And those hands are extended to you and to me this very day, this very moment. This very moment. Don't walk by. Don't count it as just a routine moment. My friends, God doesn't extend his hands because we're worthy of it. He extends his hands though we're not worthy of it. Even though we're also a disobedient and contrary people by nature. Beloved in the Lord, see the nature of your God here. See what love divine what love, divine holiness generates for a sinful people. And if you're an unbeliever, how can you continue to pass by these open hands reaching out to you from heaven? Won't you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? Because this is who Jesus is to us now and forever. His hands, his beautiful Nail-scarred, mighty hands, hands that when a leper approached him with a loathsome feared disease, he broke cultural rules by reaching out and touching the man in mercy. When two blind men asked for him to heal them, Jesus, he could have commanded it, but he reached out his hand and touched their eyes and their sight was restored. When Peter had stepped out by faith upon the waves on that stormy night to walk on the rough water with Jesus, but he began to sink into the sea, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and saved him from drowning. Jesus put his holy hands again and again on little children and blessed them. And when he was ascending to heaven... As his disciples were watching him ascend, he lifted up his hands and blessed them one last time. That their last visible picture of him would be this. Jesus' hands were always blessing, always healing, always reaching out in compassion and saving the lost. 
His preachers may have beautiful feet as they preach faithfully, but it is His hands that I want you to go home thinking about tonight. Those hands, those open hands show us that God is the true seeker. We don't seek after Him. And I'll tell you, no minister from this pulpit at Sovereign Grace will ever tell you you need to seek God because it is Christ who's seeking after us and only His seeking will ever spark or enable our seeking in return. So Christ is seeking you now with open hands. He approaches you now, both in the gospel preached, but also in the gospel served at this table. For amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands, points to the wounded feet and side, blessed emblems, of the crucified. If you're a member here or at another Christian church that teaches the Bible and you are repenting of all your known sins and living at peace with others to the extent it depends on you, then Christ has open hands towards you as you come to this table. He really does. He bids you come. He commands you to come and be refreshed by his lavish grace upon you as children. As you come, He lifts hands in heaven and blesses you, his beloved. If you're not a believer, or if you've not yet professed your faith before the church, the hands of Christ are still extended to you. But his command is that you not eat the feast of faith until you have first professed your faith to him in the church. In other words, it's important that you not use this table to seek after him, but only to be found by him as a confirmed believer in him. And so his gracious hands would point you to a a minister or an elder in the church so that your identity in meeting with them can be confirmed and established that you are indeed a son and daughter of the Lord. And remember this promise as you do so. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon his name, you will be saved. As he sweetly said to doubting Thomas, see my hands, see my hands, and stop doubting and believe. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word of Christ that engenders faith. We do believe in you. We do believe in you. We do believe in you, and we thank you for these blessed emblems of the crucified that we have spread before us, this bread and this cup. Lord, forgive our sins and restore us to the full joy of our salvation, even this night. Help us and heal us as we come to your table to believe that your beautiful hands are raised over us in blessing from heaven this very night. For we pray for this in your name. Amen.